All right, so today we want to talk about promises that we need to hold on to as we face the trials. So this is very much tied to what we read and discussed earlier in the book of James. If you remember right around verse 2 and 3, James, the brother of our Lord, says, says that when you face trials, and he says you are going to face trials in this life, what you need to do is not view the trials as, as, as a, from God to be against you, but rather when you look at these trials in your life, you need to view them with great joy. Because it is through the trials of this life that God hones us and he shapes us and he forms us into the image of his son. That if we never went through trials in this life, then we would never look like Jesus in this life. And if you are a follower of Christ, then that is your foremost desire, to be like Jesus. However, we also said last week that when we go through trials, and even though we look at them at joy, we have to realize that it's not going to be easy. That trials are hard. That we will be hard-pressed. That we will that, that we'll be broken apart. That we will be on our knees in tears. That we'll be up at night. We realize that when trials come in our life, just because we understand them to be a joy and that God is using them does not make them easy. So what do we need in our life and what do we need to do in our life in order to stand firm through these trials? And the answer is, from James, one of the things that we need is we need the promises of God. That what gets us through the trials that we face in life is holding on to the truth and holding on to the promises that God has given us in his word. There, there's a book that if you haven't read it, I, I recommend it. I highly recommend it on Audible. Uh, it's called Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress was written by a Puritan pastor named John Bunyan. And in it, it's this allegory where there's a man who's very invented with his name. There was a man, his name was Christian. And Christian accepted Christ, and he started this journey to the celestial city. He started this journey to heaven. So he was on the king's highway. And it just follows Christian's journey throughout the book of the different things that he faced in life. And we are told that he was traveling down the road with his companion, whose name, once again, very inventive, his name was Hopeful. His companion's name was Hopeful. And they veered off the king's highway, and they landed in this unknown area, and it was underneath the giant uh, despair's territory. And this giant despair, once again, very inventive of his names, right? It's one of the things that makes a book so awesome. You never have to wonder what he means. I love it. All right. So giant despair catches them there, and he's able to overpower them, and he takes them back, once again, wonderful name, Doubting Castle. All right? He takes them to Doubting Castle. He throws them in the dungeon. And we are told that the giant despair, when he has Christian and he has hopeful in the dungeon, that he begins to beat them. He begins to berate with them. And then he even, before he decides to kill them, he decides to play with them. And while they are doubting and while they're in despair in this dungeon, he begins to set poison out and says, why don't you just end your life? And Christian is very tempted to take giant despair's offer up. That just one drink 
would end all of his trials. But of course, he's not alone. He's there with his friend, hopeful, who encourages him not to do such a thing. And then we're told that Christian, while he is in this dungeon, that he remembers that he was given something for his journey. He was given the key of promise. And it wasn't found because it said that he keeps this key of promise close to him, close to his bosom, that he would just never let it go. And he forgot that it was there. And then you just kind of see the hope and the light bulbs turn on into Christian when he realized he has this key of promise. So he takes out this key of promise. And it turns out that the key of promise actually opens every door in his way to get out of, doubt, to get out of doubting castle, to get away from the giant despair, and to get back on the king's highway. I love this story, and I love the truth that it tells that we are going to have despair in our life, but we're going to have doubts in our life, that we are going to go through trials in the life. But the only way to withstand, the only way to stand firm during those times is if we hold on to the promises that God has given us in his word. And as we look at our passage today, verses 12 through 18, we find really two beautiful promises that God has given us in his word when we face trials. The first one is found in verse 12. This first verse, oh, here's a great quote from John Bunyan. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in doubting castle. So this first promise that you have, this first key of promise that we have in the book of James is found in verse 12, where he says, Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The first promise we have in Scripture is that when we have endured the trials of life, that God has a crown of life for us. Now, oftentimes when we think of crowns, we think of these. Anyone know what these are? They're the crowns. Thanks, thanks, Neil. <laughs> so these these are these are the from the, the United Kingdom. So this belongs to the House of Was it Windsor? I'm so bad at knowing the. I'm I'm bad at this. But anyway, so th- these these are crowns. And oftentimes, when we think of crowns in the Bible, oftentimes we think of these royal crowns. Just FYI, a little trivia. I saw these last night, and I'm like, how much are these actually worth? Uh, six uh, five billion pounds which is $6 billion. And so oftentimes when we think that, that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about, that's just a little, a little uh, trivia. But oftentimes when we think of crowns, this is what we're thinking about, this rich, royal uh, show of authority and power. But whenever we read this word in the book of James, he's not talking about a royal crown. He's talking about a crown of a victor. This is a victor's crown. Back in ancient Greece, when you went to the Olympic, you didn't get a gold medal. But if you won your wrestling match, if you won your race, if you won and you defeated your opponents, you were given this garland, this wreath to set on your head. And so whenever James is giving us this promise from God that when we, whenever we stand firm, we receive the victor's crown. Do you know what that crown is? He tells us that that crown is a crown 
of life. That crown is eternal life. So one of the things that keeps us with our hand to the plow, one of the things that keeps us striving after the kingdom of God is this idea that beyond all this trial, beyond all the brokenness of the world, there is a world to come and a kingdom to come where we will be with God for eternity. That is the promise we have in Christ. It says this in the book of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us. Eternal life. How is that eternal life achieved and and gotten? It's gotten by us not letting go. Whatever trial you are going through right now, whatever hardship you are facing, don't let go of the promise of eternal life. Don't let go of the promise of the kingdom of God. Don't let go of that. It is a good promise that God has given us. There's a story. It's not in the Bible. It's actually Jewish folklore about King Solomon. And King Solomon was approached by this Persian king. The Persian king, much like the queen Sheba, came to King Solomon seeking wisdom. He said, King Solomon, I'm looking for a phrase, something that I can hold on to in good times and bad times. That is true no matter what I'm going through. It's like I want to engrave it on my signet ring so it's always with me. And you know what King Solomon told him once again, not in the Bible, Jewish folklore. You know what King Solomon said? It's probably a phrase that you've heard. This too shall pass. If you are going through a good time right now, praise the Lord. Rejoice. But there's this somber reminder that this too will pass and trials will come. But if you are going through a trial right now, though it might seem all-consuming, though it might seem to be just a wave of darkness taking you under, hold on to the promise of God. Know that this too shall pass. That God's faithfulness remains. There's a great verse in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 through 18. I'm going to jump down to where it says, therefore, that second paragraph there. It says, therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed. You ever feel that way? That my trials destroying me? Even though the outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So that we do not focus what is seen, but what is unseen. For what we see is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Notice, notice what he says here. He says these, these momentary light afflictions. 
I'm just guessing some of you want to reach out to Paul and like strangle the man. Because like, you don't know my affliction. You don't know what I'm going through. But my guess is Paul knows exactly the types of things that we would go through. But what he also knows is that these things prepare us for glory. And what he also knows, look at the words he uses up there on the screen, that, that it is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. That what waits for us on the other side is so much greater and so much more beautiful than what we are facing today. And though what we are facing today might seem this giant that cannot be defeated, Paul knows and Scripture knows and God knows that there's so much more. And in comparison, the eternal weight of glory is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Hold on to the promise of eternal life. Hold on to the promise of eternal life. Remind yourself that the struggle you are going through, it's temporary. It might have these long-lasting ramifications, but in the light of eternity, it's temporary. Because when Christ returns, he will end it. And he will reign on his throne in justice and goodness. Keep what is unseen in focus. Does that sound strange? Keep what is unseen in focus. Christ is worth it. We have this second promise in verses 13 through 18. This is what they say. Let's read them again. Knowing no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Then verse 16, do not be deceived. Hold on to this promise. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This next promise that we hold on to is the goodness of God. I think oftentimes when we are facing the trial of an inner conflict, when we are facing the trial of, of temptation, when we see the for us and we are tempted to take it when we are there oftentimes what we want to do is we want to blame god even sometimes when it's not a temptation but something is done to us sometimes we just want to blame god god why am i going through this god why why did you make me with these desires why are you tempting me and we have this 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 attitude towards god but this is the truth of scripture This is a truth of God, that God is not to be blamed for your sin. And God is not to be blamed for our temptations. He's not. And he gives us the reason of why he can't be blamed. It says because it's not in his nature. Look at look at what it says. It says 
No one can say I'm being tempted by God since God, does, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. You, 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 ever, have, you ever have a dog that bites? Ah, my neighbors have a dog. God bless them. I like dogs. That dog I hate. Because it is just in his nature. To jump on people, to, to, to snip at them, to drag them down. And I'm so glad that I've got me a nice sturdy fence between my yard and their yard. But you've also probably known dogs where someone says, man, that, that dog snipped at me. That dog growled at me. And, and you want to say, no, it's, it's not in his nature. That's not what he does. Have you ever heard people say things like that? It, with God, evil and darkness is not in his nature. So since evil and darkness is not in his nature, then God cannot do evil. He cannot tempt with evil. He cannot be evil. It's not in his nature. This is what it says in 1 John 1, 5. This is a message we have heard from him, and we declare to you that God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. God cannot be blamed for sin. God cannot be blamed for temptation because in God there is no darkness. It is not in his nature. He couldn't do it if he wanted to. It's impossible. God is good. He does not tempt us, but that does not mean he does not test us. I know you're probably saying, Stephen, what is the difference between a temptation and and a test. All right, this is what I was thinking of. I was actually thinking of, let's see here. This right here. We all recognize this, don't we? Scantrons, tests. The difference between a temptation and a test. Uh, I teach some. I, I know some of you are real teachers. I, I like to play teacher because I do it part-time, and I get to teach Bible, which is just a lot of fun. Um, but in my class, in, in, in high school, I do give out tests. Now, why do I give out tests? Is it because I want my students to fail? Do I want to just like be mean and destroy my students? Some of them would say, yes, yes, I do. But it's not true. Uh, I want to give them a test, not to make them fail, but I want to give them a test to prove their knowledge. And I do everything within my power. I do everything I can as a teacher to make sure that when that test goes before them, that they do not fail. I give them the reading and they read the book. After that, we come to class and I'll lecture on what the book said. After that, if I'm able to, I'll create a, a, a lesson, an activity to reinforce what they read and what I talked about. And then at the end of the week, I have these awesome, amazing quizzes. Um, and they're a lot of fun, I think. Uh, my students don't think as much, though. But I get these quizzes. And I always say, pay attention to the quizzes. Because my quiz questions are going to be found on the test. And then, like, the week of the test. I feel like this is just, like, gravy. The week of the tests, I'll be like, all right. If I were going to be taking this test, this is what I would want to know. Last semester, I actually had my binder there, and I read the test to them. Why? 
I wanted them to get the knowledge. My heart was not, I want you to fail. Bible. (laughs) That's not what my desire is. My desire is for them to have the knowledge to grow, to prove it. When we go through trials in life, they are not temptations for us to sin and to fall in, but rather they are these, these, these beautiful tests that God has put out that saying, let me see your trust in me. One of the tests we always think of in the Bible is the test of Abraham and Isaac, Genesis chapter 2, chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice your son, your only son. So Abraham, the next morning, gathers his servants, he gathers his son, he gathers the knife and the wood, and they head out to this mountain. And the son says, Father, we have the fire, we have the wood, but we don't have the sacrifice. And Abraham said, the Lord will provide. And we are told that Abraham went out in the wilderness, went up this mountaintop, laid his son on an altar and was about to sacrifice him when the Lord stopped him. And said, do not hurt your son, do not harm your son. Here's a ram caught in the thicket. Sacrifice that ram instead. When that story begins in Genesis chapter 22, you know how it begins? It's these beautiful words. After all these things. It's a little phrase that you might just skip over. After all these things. After what things? After God had proved himself faithful time and time and time again. After God let Abraham in on his plan and on his promise and showed his power time and time again. After God showed his faithfulness and, and Abraham was blessed. It's after, after all these things, God said, do this thing. After all these things, here's the test. What does that mean? What do I get from that? This is, this is, where, I, this is where I like to go. Your trial did not come out of just nowhere. But brothers and sisters in Christ know this. God has prepared you for it. And this test that is before you now is an opportunity for you to show your love for God, your trust for God. It's not there to tempt you, to make you fall, to make you leave your faith, but it's there to show your great trust for God. Hold on to that. You can withstand the trial you are facing right now. He goes on and tells us where temptation does come from. It doesn't come from God. It's not in his nature. So where does temptation come from? He says that our temptations to sin actually come from within us. They come from our desires. And he uses this language, and I apologize for this next picture. He uses this desire. My wife is like Stephen. You got our anniversary right, but this is crossing the line. This is, this is bad. He uses this illustration that our desires that come from within us, they lure us, they entice us into sin. This language he's using in the book of James is actually a fishing language. When you put a worm on a hook, what are you doing? You are putting, I mean, I wouldn't want to eat it, but you're putting that in that water. And that fish swims by. 
And it smells it and it sees it and it desires it. Only when it closes its mouth on that hook and tries to swim away. The trap is set. You're caught. That's the way our sin works within us. Our desire is bait. Not bait that God has put there. Bait that comes from within our sinful nature. And when we choose to go after that bait, it's told that we are then falling into sin and that sin brings forth death. The question for you this morning is, is what is your bait? What is your desire that calls you and tempts you into temptation, into sin? It very well might be that it could be lust. It very well could be that it's just this desire to always be on top, to always win, to always be the best. It could be that your desire is to be seen as respectable in front of everybody else. It could be that your desire is that when people see your kids, that they think, man, they got it together. Are any of these things bad? No, but whenever we take these desires and we, we enlarge them to where they become larger than God and more important than God and more important than the kingdom, then when we take that bait, we're falling into sin. That's how sin works in us. So when we are in this time, what promise do we tell ourselves? What promises do we hold on to in Scripture? And this is what it says in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change. His nature does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave as birth by the word of truth, so that we be a kind of first fruits of all he created. When we are in these temptations, what we need to remind ourselves of is the goodness of God. We need to remind ourselves of the goodness of God, that God is not against us. God is not out there tempting us, trying to make us fall. God is not an angry God, but God is actually for you. Prove your trust. Prove your love. There's a great old hymn called Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. It says, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. I always wonder, what, what, what does that mean? How I've proved Jesus. I think this is what the hymn writer means, is that when we are going through these trials and we stand the test and we see the goodness of God, that trust in him is evidence of God's goodness. Everything good comes from God. It's in his nature. And this is a promise we hold on to. This is how we see the goodness of God. And it's worded very hard for us. Look at verse 18. This good God that when we are going through trials, when we are being tempted by our own evil desires, what does he do? His action is seen in verse 18. It says, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What in the world? What does that mean? 
by his own choice, he chose to, get, chose to give us birth by the word of truth, that we'd be a sort of first fruits of his creatures. We just don't understand, but let's try and break this down just a little bit. God chose you. Before the creation of the world, God knew you. He loved you. He chose you. In his divine providence, he chose you. By his own choice. It says he gave us birth by the word of truth. What does it mean by the word of truth? It means the redemption of Jesus. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must be born again. He gave us birth through the word of truth. That Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, that our guilt was placed on him and his righteousness was given to us. That is our new birth. He loves you. Before creation, he chose you. He gave you new birth in Jesus. Why? So that you could be the first of many. In this kingdom that he is building. That you can be a first fruit. When you are going through your trials. And when you are going through your temptations. Let that promise be a key to unlock every door of doubt and despair. That God loves you. He is for you. He has redeemed you in Jesus. And has called you to a greater kingdom. Jesus is more worth it than anything in this world. Be reminded of that. Read that. Trust it. Sing it. But also tell each other this. This is why we have community groups. This is why we have discipleship groups. That when you're going through a trial, when you're going through a temptation, you can go to brothers and sisters in Christ and they can say, remember the promises. Jesus is worth it. Don't give up on him. Don't give up on the kingdom. Hold it close to your heart. Hold it close to your bosom. Because it will get you through this. It's the promises of God. I want to end with this quote from Corey Tim Boone. Corey Tim Boone was, was a Jewish girl that went through the Holocaust. This is what she says. Gather the riches of God's promises. Nobody can take away from you those texts of the Bible that you have learned by heart. Take those promises, take those verses in the Bible, memorize them, treasure them, repeat them to yourself, repeat them to your brothers and sisters in Christ, because no one can take them away from you. The giant despair cannot take them away from you. Hold them close to your heart. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. How does a young man keep his way pure? By walking according to his ways. Hold these truths, hold these promises during your times of trial. Let's stand and pray.